1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: The Peter Schiff Show. I want to thank Indeed. They are the newest sponsor of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever when it comes to their hiring. And every decision they make is critical. Indeed is the number one job site in the world. And you can get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. And this special offer is only valid until September 30th. So don't wait, act now. Major stock markets closed out a moderately higher week on a mixed note today, you had the Dow and the S&P ending positive. You had the NASDAQ, Russell 2000, uh, negative. But I wouldn't make much out of uh, this week's bounce. I know there are a lot of people now that are saying it's a bottom. The vicious bear market that we had last week has already come to an end. And of course, in, an, in a few individual stocks, it was a bear market. But overall, none of the major indexes uh, dipped into bear market territory. But I don't think the bulls are out of the woods on this one. Uh, I still think the charts look like there is a lot of potential that we can see a bigger decline. Of course, you've got the backstop of the Federal Reserve. In fact, it's only because the Fed is there that the market didn't have a bigger drop this week. The reason we didn't have more follow through is because people expect the Fed uh, to come to the rescue. In fact, if the Fed wasn't there, The market never would have been at the levels that it just dropped from you know meanwhile gold had a small gain on the week Uh, nothing big but the technicals are looking incredible on gold you know gold i think is around 1943 it is building this new support or consolidating rather above the support level that used to be the resistance level the spike high that we had in 2011 of about 1900 that's now the support and the longer the old high can remain the new low the new resistance i think the stronger this next rally is going to be the uh, gold stocks were actually down a little bit on the week so you still have a lot of skepticism there Uh, you have a lot of nervous bulls but to me it looks beautiful the chart looks beautiful the fundamentals really look beautiful for these stocks I just think you take advantage if you're not uh, positioned well in this sector, uh, now's your chance. I mean, you, you, you had better chances earlier. Certainly, March was a gift horse, which I strongly advised my listeners not to look in the mouth and to buy with, uh, with both hands. But even if you didn't take my advice back then, you can still buy. And even if you did take my advice back then and you bought, you can still average up. If you don't have a big enough position and one good way to take advantage of uh, the gold price before it makes its net move up, people forget about the Perth Mint, you know, and I've been working with the Perth Mint in Australia now for, I don't know, almost 20 years, not quite. I think 2002, 2003 is when I first became a dealer for the Perth Mint. But I think that's another great way to have some gold stored outside the country and they have a great program for physical gold, they will store your unallocated gold for free. No storage fees. And over time, that adds up. You know, if you're storing it for you for free, year after year, you're in good shape. So it's a great way to have gold. I recommend that people have gold in various locations. Diversify where you store your gold, because you never know. But the Perth Mint is a great place to store it. Uh, You know, it's a government-owned entity. Uh, reinsured by Lloyds, very, very safe depository for your gold. So you can trust that your gold is there. uh, Nothing's going to happen to it. And if you're interested in learning about the Perth Mint, if you have an account now with Euro Pacific Capital, then just talk to your broker because all the Euro Pacific Capital brokers can help set you up a Perth Mint account and we're the only dealer, by the way, that can work in a lot of these Western states like California because of the model state laws that exist. So we're the only Perth dealer that can help uh, Americans in about 13 states or I forget the exact number, but they're mostly out West where all these fires are. Uh, but so we can help you. Uh, so talk to your broker. If you don't already have a broker, uh, you just call up and talk to Danielle Parsons or, or just go to Goldyoucanfold.com. That's the website that I set up that will take you directly to the Perth Mint page on the Euro Pacific Capital website. That's goldyoucanfold.com and, and get a hold of Danny and she'll set you up and help you buy. There are some storage fees on silver now. They used to do that for free, but now they've got so much silver, they don't have any room for more of it. So they have to start charging. Uh, but it's still a very, very low rate on your silver. But remember, it's zero storage fees for the gold. Of course, the biggest factor that's ultimately going to be driving gold and gold stocks is going to be inflation, It's going to be inflation and a weakening dollar. Uh, the dollar is going to lose value not only against other fiat currencies, uh, but it's going to lose even more value against real money, uh, gold and silver, and it's going to buy less and less. In fact, we actually got some of the government's official numbers that purport to measure inflation. Of course, they don't. They measure consumer prices and they don't even do a good job of doing that because the way the government has reverse engineered uh, the CPI and the PPI, a lot of the gains that prices are experiencing aren't even reflected in these numbers. By the time they grind them through the mill there and they adjust them hedonically and they do some kind of weighted averaging or whatever happens, The data that comes out doesn't really look much like the data that that goes in. And so we constantly get a more benign picture of what's happening the prices. Uh, Consumers are paying prices that are rising at rates that are faster than what we get from these official numbers. But the numbers we got, we got the producer price index, that one came out yesterday and The consensus was for 0.2% increase, you know, pretty low, uh, much lower than the 0.6 we got for July, and we ended up with 0.3, so a hotter than expected number, uh, more than people were looking for, and in fact, if you look at the core, right, X food and energy, they call that the core, month over month, that was up 0.4 they were looking for a gain of 0.2, so double estimates, not quite as much as the 0.5 from July, but back to back, 0.5, 0.4, these things are adding up. Year over year, though, uh, only up 0.6% on the core, uh, ex-food and energy, but they were looking for up 0.3. So again, the number is low, but not nearly as low as people expected, but the reality is, The numbers are actually much higher than that. And regardless, these numbers are going to go up. So these low numbers are not going to be as low in the future as they have been in the past. And eventually, uh, they're going to be high by any standard. The CPI, though, that came out today, also August CPI. They were looking for 0.3 on that one. Again, a slight beat at 0.4. That's the headline number. Uh, Year over year, they were looking for up 1.2 up 1.3. So still well below that 2% number, which now the Fed sees as a floor rather than a ceiling or a target. So according to the Fed, they still have a lot more inflation that needs to be created because prices are not rising nearly fast enough. Remember, they want to get the average above 2%. And right now we're still running below 2% the way they measure it. So they've got a long way to go to succeed. Of course, their success is the economy's loss. Uh, but they haven't figured that out yet. On a uh, the core, right, X food and energy, double again. They were looking for up 0.2. We got up 0.4. And year over year on the core, now it's up one point seven percent. So we're almost at that two percent level when you just look at uh, the core CPI, which you know the Fed used to like to look at. But you know they 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 always uh, a change. If they, they like to look at whichever one is lower. So if the core is running lower than the headline, they like to focus on the core. But then if the core is lower than the headline, then they focus on that. So whichever is lower is where they're going to say that's the the index we're looking at. Because, of course, they don't want to ever have to do anything about inflation being too high because that's exactly what they want. They want more inflation. And now they've actually come out and confessed it. I mean, they had been in the closet For a long time. I mean, everybody at the Fed uh, was a closet inflationist. They just didn't want to come out of the closet and admit it uh, because, you know, you don't want to admit to something like that when you're on the Fed. I mean, because people think they're the firemen, they don't think they're lighting the fires. But now you have uh, the Fed coming out and telling you, we're going to light the fires. We're a bunch of arsonists and we're going to go out and set fires. And people don't think that that's a problem. But one person who does think it's a problem, Is Alan Greenspan. Very ironically, the maestro himself was on CNBC yesterday, and I caught that interview live. And, you know, as Alan Greenspan gets older and older, right, and you hear him talk, you know, he sounds more like me and less like his prior self. Uh, And in fact, if you hear him talk in different settings, he's even more concerned. Uh, then he appeared on CNBC yesterday. But remember, I think Alan Greenspan is the most knowledgeable of the Fed chairman that we've had since Greenspan, right? So if you compare Greenspan's understanding of economics and banking and money and all that, he, he towers above uh, Bernanke, Yellen, and, and Powell, right? And he's the guy that wrote the playbook That these guys are following. The difference is he knows it doesn't end well. I think he wrote that playbook knowing that it was going to lead to disaster eventually, but he didn't care. He, at the time, Greenspan just fell in love with his own popularity. He was the hero of Wall Street. Everybody loved him and, you know, it went to his head. And, you know, that old saying about power corrupting, well, it certainly corrupted uh, Greenspan absolutely. I'm sure uh, Ayn Rand was uh, doing somersaults in, in her grave. They used to be buddy buddies. In fact, he wrote a very, very brilliant piece, The Case for Gold, which was in uh, Ayn Rand's uh, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, which is a great book that my father gave me to read uh, very early on when I was a young man. Uh, I read that book. I think I was probably even, I might've read it in high school or college. I can't remember, but it was one of the earlier introductions I had to both Rand and capitalism, but Alan Greenspan's essay is there, um, and you know you can still read that. It's online too. So the guy who wrote that obviously understands fiat money and, and central banking, and 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 he was a big critic of the Fed. And the next thing you knew, he was the leader of the Fed, right? And and, and so he kind of instead of you know trying to dismantle it from within, he then really tried to uh, legitimize it, and. He's the one that started to say that, well, you know, he looked at the price of gold. When Alan Greenspan was a Fed chairman, he admitted that he watched the price of gold quite closely. And of course, when he was Fed chairman, it was around, you know, $400 an ounce, $300 an ounce. I forget the exact price. But if you listen to his old interviews from the 90s, he will mention that he watches the price of gold as a measure of whether his monetary policy is is good. Right, because he says if the price of gold is rising too much, then obviously I'm too easy. I'm creating too much inflation. And if the price of gold is falling too much, then maybe I'm too tight and I need to ease up. And and what Greenspan was claiming, even though he's a gold bug at heart, he said, you know, we're smart enough now, the central bankers, that we can supply the same discipline that gold did, which was all BS. He had no ability to do that. Uh, but he was saying that we're going to substitute. The judgment and the wisdom of central bankers for gold, but we're still going to use gold as kind of a barometer so that even though we're not officially on a gold standard, unofficially, we're going to watch the price of gold to kind of keep policy in line. And if we see the price of gold going up towards 400, well, we're too easy. And now if it goes down below 300, we're too tight. And so gold is going to be a guidepost. So we're not just, you know, in the dark here. So he recognized the importance of gold and you know, what the implications are and what it says about monetary policy, even though he wasn't advocating a return to the gold standard, which is something he advocated at one time, you know, before he uh, was the, the, the Fed chairman. But so he's on CNBC yesterday. And of course, now, you know, gold is over 1900 an ounce. So based on the criteria that Greenspan used to use to judge himself, if he applied that same gold standard to Powell, well, Powell is failing. Clearly, if you're supposed to watch the price of gold as an indicator of whether or not you're too loose or too easy, and you got gold over 1,900, it's obvious that you're too easy. And Greenspan has the same opinion because when he was asked by whoever was interviewing, and I forget who it was, but the question he was asked was, what's your biggest concern? What worries you the most? And his answer was inflation, That's what's worrying Greenspan the most. And again, ironically, inflation is actually what Powell claims to be his biggest worry. But they're worrying about the same thing for the opposite reason. You see, Greenspan is worried about inflation because he thinks there's too much of it. He thinks inflation is going to be too high. That's why he's so concerned about inflation. He's worried about inflation running out of control. Powell, on the other hand, is worried about inflation being too low. So you have two people, one a former Fed chairman and one the sitting Fed chairman, both looking at the same data points and coming to the opposite conclusion. I mean, the polar opposite. They both pinpoint inflation as the biggest threat. Greenspan, who used to be the chairman of the Fed, who's the longest serving chairman ever and who, we again, we call them the maestro. This guy is saying, I'm looking at the data and I'm worried inflation's too high and it's going to get worse. And Powell, looking at the exact same data, says, I'm worried about inflation too, but I think it's too low. I'm worried that we don't have enough inflation. We need to create more. We need to go out of our way to get even more inflation because we don't have enough. So how is this possible, right? How can a prior Fed chairman have the exact opposite opinion of the current Fed chairman? Because One of these guys is right, and one of these guys is wrong, right? They can't both be right when they have opposite opinions. So one of them is going to be right, and one of them is going to be wrong. And my money is with Greenspan. As I said, he wrote the playbook. He knows how it ends. Powell has no idea how this thing ends. He doesn't understand the playbook or the rules. He doesn't know how the game works. You know, and it's funny, too, because Powell, when Powell was initially appointed as Fed chairman, he he thought his job was to normalize interest rates. He, th- he didn't realize that his job was just to blow another bubble, right? He came to the Fed. He approached it. Hey, I'm an outsider. You know, I'm not an academic. And yeah, you know, we need to raise rates. And he, you know, he's continued to raise rates. Um, Yellen started it, but she barely raised any rates. And now this Powell comes along and thinks that he can keep on doing it. And so, hey, I'm going to normalize rates. And of course- Donald Trump, when he, you know he campaigned, hey, we got to get rid of Yellen. She's just a lackey. She's just doing political things. She's just blowing a stock market bubble and printing too much money just to try to make Obama look good. And you know, vote for me. I'm gonna. I'm. We're gonna have you know sound money. There are a lot of people that you say, hey, Trump is a good guy. He wants to go back on a gold standard. He's for sound money. I was like, what are you kidding? That's he's not. He's not advocating it. But he was certainly trying to throw a little meat to that wing of the the Republican Party that is for sound money. So And he talked that talk, but of course, he didn't walk the walk at all because as soon as Powell took office and started raising rates, what was Trump saying? Powell's a fool. Powell's an idiot. We got to get rid of Powell. For a while, Powell was public enemy number one. Powell was a bigger threat to the economy than China, according to um, Trump. Of course, it didn't take long to get Powell's mind right. Right, as soon as the stock market started to tank in the fourth quarter of uh, 2018, Powell started playing ball, cutting rates, back to QE. That was 2019. He didn't call it QE. They called it not QE. They came up with a distinction without a difference to try to rationalize what they were doing. But of course, they dropped all the pretense uh, on COVID-19 and they went straight to zero, right? Didn't even pass go, all the way to zero. Uh, QE went QE4 to QE infinity, uh, so all that happened while Donald Trump was leading the cheers, right? More money printing, more money printing. In fact, Donald Trump is saying rates are not low enough; they're up at zero. We need negative. So he criticized zero percent interest rates as being too low when he's a candidate, and now he's the president and he says that's too high. We need to have negative rates. So you know, Powell came into office thinking uh, that he actually had a real job. Uh, and then once he got the job, he realized that what the job was, was propping up bubbles that prior Fed chairman had helped inflate. And so that's really what he is doing. And his concern is that there's not enough inflation. He's concerned about keeping these asset prices levitated, maintaining this phony wealth effect, because that's all they can do. They, they can't create legitimate economic growth. All they can do is create the illusion of growth. And what Powell wants to do is preserve that illusion as long as possible, even if it means things get worse. But Greenspan isn't in uh, office anymore. And so he's a little bit more circumspect. And I don't know, maybe he's just, uh, you know, trying to get into heaven at this point uh, based on how old he is. So he's trying to be a little bit more honest, although he's not really, a, you know, publicly atoning for his own sins and kind of fessing up uh, to the mistakes that he made and how he really has set us up for the crash that's coming. But at least he's speaking about the problem with debt and the problem with entitlements and the fact that we're going to end up printing all this money uh, to monetize all this debt and how dangerous this is and how much he's worried about it. Now, it would have been nice if Greenspan did something about it when he had the opportunity back in the 80s or 90s. You know, He didn't have to monetize the dot-com bubble and enable that. He didn't have to do the same thing uh, after uh, September 11th and uh, inflate a a bigger bubble in real estate, which popped and led to the 2008 financial crisis. Alan Greenspan had an opportunity as Fed chairman to do the right thing. If he was worried about inflation, he should have been worried about it back then and done something about it. So now it's too little too late to come and try to criticize the current Fed chairman, although he doesn't come out and actually criticize him. It's kind of like an unspoken rule. Uh, You know, prior Fed chairman never criticized the guy who's got the job. Uh, But obviously, if he's saying he's worried about inflation, that is a de facto criticism of Powell because Powell says we need more inflation and he wants to create it. Well, obviously, Greenspan would have to say that Powell's doing a bad job if Greenspan is worried about inflation and Powell says we need more inflation. Right. So but he doesn't want to come right out and say he's doing a bad job. You got to read between the lines, which isn't uh, that hard to do. But why didn't Greenspan do something when he actually had a chance. Of course back then it would have been difficult. He would have had to take a stand like Volcker did and incur the wrath of Wall Street and and you know and politicians. You know Volcker was willing to do that. Volcker was willing to take the heat. And Ronald Reagan was willing to stand by his man. He wasn't like Donald Trump criticizing Volcker for those high rates. He stood behind him and that was one of the reasons that the policy worked. It had the support of of the president, uh, but Greenspan was no Paul Volcker, and you know he 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 just you know never met a bubble that he didn't uh, want to reflate. In fact, he never met a bubble that he recognized. Greenspan was famous as saying you can never spot a bubble in advance, which is BS, you know. <laughs> and then he said that the best thing to do is wait for bubbles to pop and then deal with them afterwards, rather than trying to contain them before they pop. And of course, what was Greenspans you know game plan how do you deal with a bubble that's popped inflate a bigger one what kind of ridiculous plan is that you know it's just that they didn't have the guts to rain on the parade that's why the federal reserve doesn't want to recognize a bubble early and prevent it from getting bigger because then they're the party pooper because when all the people are partying in the bubble they don't know it's a bubble they don't want the federal reserve to try to you know end the party take away the punch bowl but that's exactly what they're supposed to do. Of course, now the punch bowl, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not even a bowl anymore. I mean, it's its a swimming pool uh, full of punch and it's already spiked, you know, so probably all alcohol. You could probably barely even see the punch that's left in that swimming pool, but they're, they're never going to take it away. its It's a permanent fixture. That's all we got. And they just got to keep increasing the amount of alcohol that they pour into the swimming pool. But the interesting thing is more people don't think about this and say, wait a minute, why is Powell's judgment any better than Greenspan's? Right? I mean, we think Powell is so smart because he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Well, at one time we thought Greenspan was really smart because he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Now, unless you just think he's senile now and he's not as sharp as he used to be uh, when he was not quite this old, but if you think that he's you know, maybe gained some additional wisdom in his older years he has even more experience look there's no reason to believe Powell and say that that uh, that Greenspan is wrong you could just as easily say that Greenspan's got it right which means we're in a lot of trouble right because if Greenspan is right and the problem is that we have too much inflation and now you have Powell saying we need even more i got to make sure that we have even more inflation than the inflation that Greenspan is currently worried about right this is a massive massive disaster in the making Which again, is why I mentioned earlier, you got to do something, you got to protect yourself against inflation. Remember, today's podcast is sponsored by our brand new sponsor, Indeed.com. It is the number one job site in the world, and Indeed gets you to the very best people and it gets you there fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you pause your account at any time and there's no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. In fact, I was on their site today. I'm actually in the process of signing up because we are hiring uh, at Europe Pacific Capital. Uh, so you can always send your resumes in. You know, In Puerto Rico, uh, we need some people fast uh, at Europe Pacific Asset Management. But I was perusing on their website And it's a great way to look for a job because I went up there and I was kind of like pretending that I was looking for a job in financial services. And you just put your your location and you can even qualify it, uh, how many miles, salary, the type, you know, the full-time, part-time. And then you hit go and you just get a whole list of these jobs. They come up, you can read about them. He has a place where you can upload your resume, get it on there. Employers can look at it. I mean, obviously, In today's day and age of COVID, I mean, this is probably the best way, you know, more than ever, uh, these online recruiting and job sites is the way to go. And I think when it comes to these online uh, job sites, I think Indeed is the way to go. They've got 73% of the online job seekers are visiting each month. So you're going to get a lot of quality uh, candidates uh, looking at your ad if you've got an account at Indeed. So right now, they are offering my listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see your ad and see it fast. So you can try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com/peter. This is their best offer that they've got right now, and you're getting it on the Peter Schiff Show podcast. So go to Indeed.com. Slash Peter, and remember, terms and conditions do apply, and this offer is only valid until September 30th. So act fast. Also, you know, while I talked a little bit about the fires that the central bankers have been lighting, Mother Nature is lighting a lot of fires. Although some of these fires actually got started uh, as a result of man. Uh, man-made and not because of global warming, right? I mean, some of them just get started because humans are careless when it comes to fire. But you've got some serious, serious wildfires burning out there on the West Coast. I mean, particularly, you know, California, uh, Oregon, Washington State, but also there's a few other states out West that are dealing with these fires. But it really is kind of apocalyptic out there. I mean, right out of a Mad Max movie, if you look at uh, The Color of the Sky I tell you, though, I mean, a lot of people are going to be very, very excited for 2020 to come to an end. I mean, we've had a lot of stuff going on. I mean, we, we have these wildfires in California now and out there. In fact, every couple of years, it seems like they're the worst wildfires ever. So they keep getting worse. Of course, you've got a lot of people that are blaming all this on global warming. But, you know, I just want to highlight again, this is another headache, another major problem that we don't need because what are these fires doing? They are destroying stuff. They are destroying buildings. Well, now what do we have to do? We have to replace what we lost. Now, I know you're going to get a lot of these Keynesians who think, oh, this is great news. This is good for the economy, right? Natural disasters are great because now we get to build. We get to rebuild. Well, if that was great, well, why wait for mother nature? Just burn our houses down, right? And then we we can all get rich building them back. The problem is, You don't get rich just replacing what you lost, you're treading water. And the problem is the resources that are gonna be needed to replace the houses that we used to have, but now burned down, those are the resources that we could have used for other stuff. And now we could have had the other stuff in addition to our houses. And now we had to sacrifice that other stuff to rebuild the houses that we lost, right? And so the scene, right, what you see is, oh, here's this new house that got built. What you don't see is all the things that didn't happen because the resources that would have made them happen have now been diverted uh, to rebuilding what we already lost. So disasters never make you richer. They always make you poorer. And now we're getting hit at a time where we really can't afford to be hit. I mean, look at what was happening to lumber prices. Lumber prices were already zooming. What's going to happen to them now? I mean, how much more lumber do we need to replace the houses that were perfectly good houses that now no longer exist? And of course, you know, a lot of these houses that have been built in areas that are prone to wildfire. I mean, one of the reasons that we can keep building in areas prone to natural disasters like floods and things like that is because the government subsidizes uh, insurance and keeps the premiums lower and actually encourages people to build houses in areas where they're likely to flood or burn down. I mean, what we need is a free market. So that fewer people build in those areas and the people who do uh, take better precautions uh, in their construction uh, and, and, you know, to guard against this, but you have the government actually underwriting risk and subsidizing people to engage in risky behavior. And so we have more of it. And so now we lose more houses and then the government comes with all this disaster relief and federal aid. But of course, where does that money come from? They have to print it. So again, the wildfires are going to destroy our stuff and now we're going to have to print more money to try to replace the stuff so we have less stuff and more paper money again this is adding fuel to the inflation fire that's the one that's really going to be ravaging the economy now obviously this one i mean you're talking about people are you know losing their lives and property is being damaged so that that loss you know is 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 not measured in dollars and cents but the loss, even the cost to the economy of having to rebuild those uh, those structures is still going to be small relative to the overall damage that the Federal Reserve and government are, are doing to the U.S. economy. And of course, a lot of that damage that is being done is the result of legislation uh, that was enacted 19 years ago. Today is the 19th anniversary of, of September 11th. And again, I mean, it's not really an anniversary because an anniversary is something that you celebrate. 9-11 is nothing to celebrate. I mean, you can commemorate it, but it was 19 years ago today, September 11, 2001, uh, that those airplanes uh, crashed into the Twin Towers. We had the other one uh, crash into the Pentagon and another one uh, was crashed in a field uh, because the, um, the the passengers got wise to what was going on, and they sacrificed themselves uh, to save others on the ground. But the real loss, apart from the loss of life, and whenever I talk about 9-11 and I talk about you know the other damage, I never want to minimize the fact that a lot of people died uh, and the impact that that had on, on their families and, and their friends. But the impact on the nation, in fact, on the world, is so much greater. And I always say that the terrorists won on September 11th and they didn't won because they succeeded in knocking down the trade centers. That wasn't their victory. I mean, we've replaced it. I mean, we have freedom tower now. I mean, the city, you know, we rebuilt. Um, no, the terrorists won because of what America did in response to uh, those those, uh, those, those, those acts. We terrorized ourselves. The worst piece of legislation that started it was the Patriot Act, right? Patriot Act, which of course had overwhelming support. Bush was the president. Who could be against the Patriot Act? What, you're not a patriot? We're at war. We're having a war on terror. Everybody has to be patriotic when we have a war, right? So let's just pass this Patriot Act. Except the Patriot Act is probably the most unpatriotic act ever passed, which was why it was appropriately named. There is no truth in legislating. If there was, all of these politicians would be in jail. But it started with the Patriot Act, and that is all anti-money laundering. And again, you know, the government sold the American public on this as, hey, we're going to fight terrorism. See, the way we're going to make sure that we don't have another 9-11 is we're going to catch the terrorists where they where they bank, Wait, we're going to find where these terrorists keep their money. So the next time they try to finance an operation like this, it won't happen because we're going to f- snuff it out through the banking system, right? All of that was BS, right? No terrorism is being stopped uh, by anti-money laundering laws and all, all this stuff that came about as a result of the Patriot Act. The real purpose of the Patriot Act was to destroy all Financial privacy, first in the United States and then in the entire world. And so the government doesn't want anybody having financial privacy because they want to know exactly where everybody's money is. Not because they're worried about terrorism, it's because they're worried about people not paying taxes. That's the threat that they're concerned about, especially when they know they're going to keep raising taxes higher and higher and higher. And the higher taxes go, the greater incentive people had to not report their income and try to find places to hide it. So the real target of the Patriot Act wasn't terrorists. It was regular citizens who may not be uh, 100% compliant when it comes to income taxes. It wasn't even drug dealers. I mean, a little bit more drug dealers, you know, than terrorists. I mean, yes, it does probably help a little bit. Uh, but, you know, that's still small compared to the real goal, which is, you um, clamping down on on tax compliance. but also you know as governments get more and more oppressive, the more they know about you, the easier it is to oppress you and the easier it is to suppress any kind of uprising. you know because eventually you know you have very corrupt governments and they pass all kinds of horrible laws. but then if you oppose those laws, you become a lawbreaker. you become a quote unquote terrorist. and now they can use all this power, Uh, To get you. But you're really not a terrorist, right? You're you're a freedom fighter. The terrorist is the government that's terrorizing the citizens. But the way they're able to preserve their power and to prevent an uprising is to have all this financial information at their fingertips about all the citizens, because now they know what everybody's doing and and they can put a stop to it. You know, before 9-11, if you opened up a bank account, I mean, you had some semblance of privacy, in that bank account, I mean, now you don't have any privacy at all. In fact, your banker and your broker, I mean, it it totally screwed up the brokerage industry. I mean, my compliance costs running my broker-dealer went through the roof uh, after, you know, the, the Patriot Act. I mean, I had to start hiring all kinds of people. I mean, it basically made it impossible for small people to even stay in the brokerage business. I'd say that one of the biggest reasons so many small firms left was because of the AML Uh, costs from the Patriot Act and all that stuff. But basically, the government turned the entire financial industry into unpaid IRS agents and spies, where everybody has to spy on their customers and uh, try to figure out if any of their cursed customers uh, have raised a red flag and they have to file these suspicious activity reports, SARS, on their customers and rat them out to the government. And most of the time that you see something that looks suspicious, there's an honest explanation for it, but you're supposed to just report them to the government. That's your job. And you know, and if you don't report somebody, when they audit you and they have these huge audits and they look through all of your books and records, and if they come up with a transaction that does raise a red flag in their mind and you didn't file a report on it, then you're in trouble. You could be fined, you could go to jail. It becomes a crime not to report a potential crime. Even if what you failed to report was totally innocent, the fact that you didn't go out of your way to rat that person out to the government, well, that makes you a criminal too. And so realize this, that your banker and your broker is spying on you by law. They are required to spy on you. And if they see that you've done something suspicious, they're required to rat you out and they're not allowed to tell you. See, that's also a crime. See, if you see somebody, if you're a banker or a broker and you see some transactions that are a little suspicious, it's a crime to alert the client, "Hey, you know, we're looking at this, you know, it looks kind of suspicious." No, no, no. You're just supposed to keep it quiet because you're not supposed to tip them off to the fact that now they're going to, you know, get investigated by the IRS, which is what's going to happen. So, I mean, it really destroyed, you know, what was left of American freedom. And of course, they've just been building on it ever since, bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and it's gone to the whole world now. It's not just America, right? We led the charge on destroying all the, the privacy when it comes to your finances, all under the guise of we got to go after the terrorists and then we have to go out of the drug dealers. That That's just a distraction. And even if you think that's a good idea to go after the terrorists or the drug dealers, you never want to give the government that kind of a tool because they will use it against you, right? They're, once they have the tool, then you can't stop them. They're going to use it against law-abiding citizens, even citizens who are compliant with these, you know, confiscatory taxes. They're still being run through, you know, uh, the, the ringer. But the cost of complying with these rules and regulations—I mean, that's one of the reasons that it's so hard for me to do stuff at my bank. These rules and regulations is why gold money had to give up on its ambitious plan of making gold money and allowing people to use gold really as a medium of exchange. The technology is there, it's so simple to do. It's never been easier to transact in gold in the history of the world. The only reason that we can't do it is because government regulation makes it so expensive. Now, is that a coincidence? Well, because obviously the government doesn't want people to have a superior alternative to their fiat currency, And, of course, they want to be able to spy on every transaction we make. They want to micromanage and have more control. And they have all this control because of 9-11. So the terrorists won. We have lost so much freedom. We are much less free. We have far less liberty today because we were attacked by terrorists. But the terrorist attack isn't what did it. What enabled the terrorists to win was what we did to ourselves. It was the way we reacted to, their, to what they did. And maybe they knew that was going to happen. Maybe maybe they were smart enough to realize that that was the real damage. And of course, you know, there are people out there that try to think, hey, maybe this maybe we planned it. Look, I don't think that our politicians are smart enough to pull off something like that and to cover it up. But what they are smart enough to do is take advantage of it, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. And that is exactly uh, how they approached 9-11. They did not let this crisis go to waste, and they used it to dramatically expand government to declare war on terror, because it's always during wartime that Americans are most willing to surrender their rights and liberties, and that's exactly what happened. And they're doing the same thing again with COVID-19. We now have a war on a disease, and the government is using this war as another excuse to diminish our rights, diminish our freedoms, and to expand its own size. Where we're getting more government, we're getting more government regulations, more government spending, more government programs because of this war on COVID-19, uh, just like we had the war on terrorists. So we're, we're doing it all over again. We're doing it to ourselves. And once again, just like we did more damage to ourselves than the terrorists, the government's COVID-19 cure is far more damaging to our economy than the disease itself. I want to finish up today's podcast though by talking about the season opener that we had last night. NFL football returns. Uh, they're actually playing games. You know, there were fans in 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 the in the stadium. Um, far fewer fans than normal, but actually there were quite a few fans. I guess they were social distanced, and I couldn't really tell. You know, the masks that they were wearing, but. What was more interesting to me was really not what was going on on the field during the game, right? And you had the defending Super Bowl champs, Kansas City Chiefs, uh, hosted the Texas Titans, beat them. Uh, But the action on the field, to me, was secondary to the action that took place on the field before the kickoff. And that was this unity, right? Where you have all of these... NFL players, just like, you know, the the, the the NBA players, they need to show their fans and the world that they stand with uh, Black Lives Matter, right? And they stand with George Floyd. And, you know, actually, I mean, I'm glad they, did, they didn't actually come out with any posters with pictures of George Floyd or anything. I mean, his name wasn't part of the protest. But what they were doing is they were all standing together before the game, to signify their support for racial equality, racial uh, justice, and to acknowledge all the racial injustice, right? To acknowledge this systemic racism that we now all agree, right? Or not all of us, but a lot of us now agree is not only real, but is the reason that there are so many problems in the African-American community it's all because of racism. And so the NFL players, they want to get together and they want to show their support because they think in so doing, they will help push America to doing what's right. And finally tackling this systemic racism, uh, acknowledging it, atoning for the sins, doing something about it. I don't know, reparations, whatever, but this is how we can solve the problem. And of course, you know, even these NFL players, are demanding that the owners do more, spend more, whatever, to eradicate uh, racism. And it really just bothers me to see all of these high-paid professional athletes, very highly paid professional athletes, many of them, you know, African-American, complaining about racism, right? I mean, obviously, racism didn't impede their success, Right. Look at Patrick Mahomes, who is the quarterback of the Chiefs, who's, I mean, he's half black, right? I think his dad is black and his mother is white. But, you know, Obama was half black and he was black. So if you're half black, you know, you're black, right? You're, and he is about to become, I think, the highest paid NFL player in history. I think he's, I, I heard that he's going to be doing a $500 million contract. I mean, half a billion dollar contract to to play football. Um, racism didn't prevent Patrick Mahomes from getting that contract. You know, if Patrick Mahomes is smart, he will get a gold clause, right? Have a gold clause on his contract because we could have such massive inflation, you know, around his contract that, you know, I mean, it's still probably going to be a lot of money, but you never know. I mean, you know, we can have hyperinflation and he's, you know, paying, playing for monopoly money. So he should really tie it to the price of gold. But clearly- The NFL is not racist, but that doesn't stop a lot of people from somehow claiming that the NFL is racist. And, you know, one of the ways I hear people trying to claim that the NFL is racist is they point to uh, the number of black head coaches in the NFL. And right now there's three and there are 32 NFL teams. So a little under 10%, was that 9.5%, almost 10% of the coaches are black. All right, I mean, a little bit less than the 13% of the population that's black. I mean, if they hired one more coach, if there were four, we'd pretty much be there. If there were five out of 32, now you'd, what's that, 15, 16%, you'd be overrepresented. But they'll say, no, but wait a minute, you can't look at it uh, relative to the population. Look at the fact that 70% Of the NFL players are black. So if 70% of the players are black, well, 70% of the coaches should be black. I guess that's their reasoning, which first of all, once you have to acknowledge that 70% of the players are black right there, wait a minute. I mean, how can the NFL owners be a bunch of racists if 70% of the players on their teams are black? I mean, their racism isn't preventing them from hiring all these blacks. I mean, the people who should be complaining should be the white players, or the Hispanic players, or the Asian players. I mean, they're not getting hired, right? Why aren't they complaining? In fact, you know, you've got all these guys in the NFL that are complaining about racism. You know, maybe we should boycott the games and say, you know, you're right. We need the NFL to look like America. You have too many African-American players. That's not right. There's that's obviously there's obviously systemic racism in sports. After all, why else would there be seventy percent of the players black? I mean, it can't be for a logical reason, right? It, if if there's a disparity, it must be the result of systemic racism. So yeah, we need to make the NFL look like America. Where are the female players? You know, where are the transgender players? Why aren't there any older players? I mean, there's age discrimination going on. Why are there no people in their fifties and sixties? What about what about um, people in with handicaps? Why don't we have any handicap players? They're obviously discriminating against the disabled, right? I mean, you can make these arguments, but it's amazing that they want to say that the NFL is racist because we only have 10% of the head coaches are, are black. The skill set is completely different, right? What it takes to be a good coach, is not necessarily what it takes to be a good um, player on the field, right? There's different skill sets, different abilities, and you know, even though 70% of the professional football players are black, it's a smaller percentage in in in, in college. I think you know, Division One, yeah, you got maybe 55% of the Division One uh, players are black, but as you go to Division Two, II, Division Three, you know. You have more and more white players, more and more Hispanic players. Certainly you go down to high school, right? So a lot of these guys who become coaches, you know, they didn't play in the NFL. They weren't good enough to make it to the NFL. Some of them did, but a lot of them, you know, played in college. And and, and then they went on to coaching. They didn't go on to the NFL or they played in high school. And, and a lot of these coaches too, they, they worked their way up. They could start in high school, then they can go to college. And they're, you know, they worked their way up the ranks. But to say that, the fact that only 10% of the coaches are black, that somehow proves that the owners are racists. How is that possible? How can they not be racist when it comes to hiring players, but they're racist when it comes to hiring coaches? The fact that there are 70% black players proves that they're not racist. See, the coaches want to win. I mean, is it possible... That there's an owner, an NFL owner, who is a racist? Sure, it's possible. But what the owner of an NFL team cares more about than their racism is winning. They want to make money. And you make more money when you have a winning team, right? The better your record, the fans like going to games where the home team is winning, right? You can sell more merchandise when you have a good team. You get better TV spots. You get more money. Hey, you might make it into the playoffs. You get even more money, right? These are big, expensive teams. And these guys got big egos, right? You've got some very, very rich owners, right? And what do they want to do? They want to win. They want to beat the other rich owners on the field. This is their own version of war, right? So they don't care what color these players are. They want to win, right? And the same thing with coaches. They want to hire the best players for the job, and it just so happens that seventy percent of them are black, right? And it, it you know, and it's a fair competition, right? The reason that blacks are are winning these positions is because they're better than the players that they beat of whatever ethnicity they happen to be. The same applies to coaching. These uh, NFL owners are looking to hire the best coach possible. And they're looking at all the coaches and they're looking at their track records and where they've coached in the past and what kind of success they've had. They're trying to find a coach that's going to enable the team to win, right? They just spent all this money hiring all these expensive athletes. They're not going to blow the whole thing by hiring a second-rate coach just because he's white. They're not going to pass up this great coach who happens to be black and say, nah, you know, I'm not gonna hire you, you're black. I mean, I'm fine hiring black players, but come on, I draw the line at coaching. That is a bunch of nonsense, right? What what it really proves is you can succeed if you're black, as long as you're good, right? That's how you make it to the top. And the same thing would be true in every occupation and in every profession. People always wanna hire the best, right? Are there some people who are racist? Yeah, sure. There's not that many though. They're, you know, percentage-wise, but even if they are, they're going to keep quiet, keep that to themselves if it costs them money, right? When the government comes in with these anti-discrimination laws and takes away the financial penalty for being a racist, well then they incentivize racism. But in a free market, then racism is uh, eradicated on its own. You know, it's unfortunate because all these players now want to get together and demand that we put an end to racism. And we can't do that. There's gonna be racists in society. What we want is to minimize the damage that racism does. But government, not only does it minimize it, it maximizes it. And the problems that are plaguing the African-American community that a lot of these players are rightfully concerned about. I'm not saying they're wrong uh, to be upset about what's happening In African American communities, it's a disaster what's happening. It's a disgrace. We need to do something about it, but it's not because of racism. And all this Black Lives Matter, you know, like, oh, the problem that young black men have is they're getting gunned down by white racist cops. That is a bunch of nonsense. Yes, there are a lot of young black men who are getting gunned down, but they're being gunned down by other young black men. That is the reality. In fact, if you look at the leading cause of death, for young black males in America, and these are, you know, 18 to 40 in this area, it's homicide, right? More young blacks are killed by other people than are killed by themselves, than, than commit suicide or who die in accidents, right? Because when you're young, right, that's how you die. I mean, you, don't, you know, you're you're not dying of disease generally because the diseases don't start hitting you until you're older. So if you're a teenager, you're in your 20s and you die, an accident or, you know, suicide is, is usually the top causes, but for young black males, it's, it's murder. For young white males, it's much different. I think it's like 32% about of uh, the young black males who die, it's a death by homicide. When it comes to white males, now you're at 3 or 4%, so a much lower percentage. So for young white men, you're, again, far more likely to kill yourself, uh, you know, drug overdose, whatever it is, or you die in an accident, a car accident or some type of, you know, other event that happens and and you end up dying. Um, but for young black males, it's being murdered by other young black males. And of course, when you look at women, then, you know, the the numbers tank, right? So the problem isn't for black women, it's, it's, it's the males. And that's where, uh, the problem is, but it's not because of racism. Blacks aren't killing other blacks because of racism, right? But one of the reasons they are is because of the war on drugs. So why aren't these athletes demanding an end to the war on drugs? If they really care about what's happening in the inner cities and all the violence, how about ending the war on drugs? Because, you know, drugs are winning, right? People are dying. Look at all the, the the overdose deaths. I mean, reality is that's what killed George Floyd. They should be worried about all the drugs George Floyd was, was taking and the fact that he OD'd on drugs right? Not about the the, the policemen, but they're not going to talk about that. They're not going to talk about the failed welfare state, right? They're not going to talk about all these young black males growing up without fathers. Hey, why is that? Maybe this is one reason that they all turn to grime is because they don't have a father figure in the house. And why is that? Once upon a time before the welfare state, uh, black children were more likely to grow up in intact families than white children. They had very strong uh, families before the government welfare system destroyed uh, the black family. And, and now you have all these out-of-wedlock births and you have all these young black males just growing up and, and, and they go to crime. And of course, we glamorize and glorify crime with the war on drugs by creating so much profits for the people that go into drugs. And then, of course, we build all these roadblocks for all legitimate avenues we build in a minimum wage law we build in occupational licensing laws we make it so much harder for young black males to gain legitimate employment we kind of you know steer them we corral them into into drugs i mean we shut down all their other avenues and the only one that's left is drugs and of course they see their friends the ones that are dealing drugs they have all the bling they have the fancy cars they get the the prettier girls and, and, and then we have the rap music that glorifies it. I mean, that's not what these guys are are criticizing. There is so much they could do. What about the failed public schools? What about what we're doing to our uh, African-American kids in these horrible government schools that they're trapped in? Why aren't they asking for a voucher system, right? Why do not they, they demanding that we actually do something to help these kids get real educations? Not being indoctrinated by these bureaucrats, but let them actually learn something. And, you know, how about more on-the-job training, more apprenticeships? Get rid of all these laws, minimum wage laws again, or other laws that make it too expensive to hire these unskilled young men uh, and, and and learn them, teach them some job skills. Let them learn on the job. Let them let them climb up the job ladder. No, no, no. We've destroyed all the bottom rungs on that job ladder. They have no chance of climbing on. The only job they're gonna get is is in drugs. So they can be doing so much good, right? These are uh, athletes that are high profile guys, well-respected in these communities, idolized, people look up to them, they're role models, and they wanna pretend that all these problems are the result of racism, that's an excuse. That's the one way to make sure that the problems are never solved. If you just blame everything on racism and just accept the fact that you're a victim Well, okay, well, there's always going to be racism. So you're always going to be a victim instead of taking responsibility for yourself and realizing, yeah, there might be some racism out there, but damn it, I'm going to overcome that. I'm just going to work twice as hard. I'm going to overcome those stereotypes and use that to your advantage, right? And, and, And these guys could be doing that. They could really be making a difference. And it's so, so frustrating to see them squander that opportunity just because it's easy, right? They're taking the easy way, right? It, it, it looks really good, Because right? these guys are making a ton of money. And I think it's so interesting that they want their owners to spend all this money. Well, how about if they cut your salaries, right? How about that? You guys got plenty of money. Spend that, right? And, and you can use that to, to, to uh, co- cover reparations because, you know, obviously slavery didn't hurt you guys. But the easiest thing to do to make their fans think they care is to just stand with unity and and just buy this narrative hook, line, and sinker. Oh yeah, we stand with you, it's solidarity. How about show some guts, right? And actually stand up to the false narrative and try to make a real positive difference by educating some of these people to understand the truth and accept the truth along with personal responsibility and hold these leaders, right? Politicians and and the race baiters, uh, the poverty pimps, you know, shine a spotlight on them, Right? They have that opportunity, but no, they blow it because it's more convenient. It's easier to be liked if you just take the low road and just pretend you care so much about all these injustices by standing together in the middle of a field and holding hands. <laughs>